0: can text in questions and we will do a Q&A following the service. Uh, the service is already live, so you can text in your questions as you think of them if you would like, um, or of course you can do so after the series uh, or after the sermon tonight. Uh, Matt, could you dial me back just a little bit? There's no way I'm going to stay this quiet. Thank you. Um, so we, we're right at the center of the series. Where we're going um, next week, the following week, we'll be focusing on gender, and then the final week, we'll be looking at singleness and celibacy. But tonight, tonight we're going to finish off this tripart uh, view of biblical sexuality. We've looked at these three aspects, which in traditional theolo- theology are known as the erotic aspect of sexuality, the unitive aspect, and tonight, we're going to look at the procreative Um, But if you've been with us, you know we've expanded upon each one of those as we've tried to connect it with the image of God. And so uh, we've unpacked them to be the embodied aspect of our sexuality, which means that our sexuality isn't reducible to desires, that the act of sex isn't just about what we do with our bodies, but what we do with ourselves, as well as how we interact with other holistic persons. So that's embodied sexuality. We've seen that our sexuality is unitive or relational, that it is designed to fit in the context of this covenant relationship called marriage, and tonight we're going to talk about the procreative, but we're going to broaden it out a little bit and call it social sexuality, and we'll see why tonight. Now, um, I would like you all to turn in a Bible to the book of Malachi, Malachi is not a book we commonly turn to, so if you're not familiar, it's the last book of your Old Testament and the final of the 12 minor prophets named for their size and not for their importance. Um, If you're in need of a Bible tonight, in the back of a pew in front of you, the black ones are Bibles. You'll find an index in the front that will get you to the book of Malachi. You're going to want to study along with us tonight because we're going to move around quite a bit. We're going to be in chapter 2 of Malachi to begin. Let me explain what Malachi is doing in this book. This is after Israel has returned to the land, um, after the exile in Babylon, so now they're back in the land, and they're a little bit disgruntled. They're upset with God because they feel like they're going through all the motions of what it's supposed to be to worship God, and yet there's things that are clearly sour in their relationship. And so they're effectively trying to blame God for not keeping his promises, and Malachi is basically saying, you should probably take a second look at yourself. You are accusing God, but you should be accusing yourself. Specifically, what he's talking about here in chapter 2 is that it had become a broad practice of the men in Israel to divorce their wives. And if we put together the story with a couple of other Old Testament books, like the book of Ezra, at this time, they were actually divorcing their Jewish wives to marry foreign women. Okay, so not just divorcing them, but specifically so that they could be free to marry foreign women. Um, but Malachi, in dealing with this and in pointing that, this out, in accusing them of this, actually gives a perfect summary to the things that we've learned about sexuality. And so as we read the passage tonight before we pray, I want, to, I want you to see if you can spot all three aspects, the unitive, the procreative, and the erotic. I want you to see if all three, the embodied, like we talked about, the relational, and tonight the social, see how they're all mentioned in here. Um, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 14. Um, He says that God doesn't favor your offerings, verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Let's pray. God, we have a unique challenge tonight because of the time that we live in, because of the world as it is, because of the culture that we're in. We tonight have to talk about the aspect of sexuality that the rest of history took for granted as being obvious, um, but for many reasons we have a tendency in the modern world to forget. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show us, as you have been consistent to do in this series, who you are and who you designed us to be and how it is that we make manifest your character and what you've done in Jesus Christ through the stewardship of our sexuality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you spot them? Notice also that in this passage, like we've seen over and over again with all of the other references we've looked at, Malachi's understanding of these things is clearly rooted in Genesis chapter 2. As we've seen week after week and passage after passage, the authors of Scripture turn to the creation story to help us answer the question, What is sex? and the second question, What is it for? And so he lists all three here, beginning, beginning with this relational aspect. He says, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by what? By covenant. And then he goes on and he says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? The oneness being one flesh union, like we talked about last week, this, uh, this aspect of embodiment. And then finally, and for tonight, he adds, and what was the one God seeking? What was God after? Why does God care about marriage? Why does God care about sexuality? Why is he so concerned about the divorces that are going on in Israel? The final answer that he gives here is godly offspring, okay? Now, once again, this is not a new facet that Malachi is adding to an understanding of sexuality after years and years of progressive revelation. He's pulling this directly from the story in Genesis 1 and 2. You may remember that Adam and Eve and mankind through them are called to be fruitful and to multiply, Be fruitful and multiply, and so obviously that implies procreation. We could summarize it very easily, have babies, right? That's built into the design of the initial relationship. Now, the thing is, we live in a world today where because of technological changes, we can for the first time separate these three aspects, The embodied sexuality, the unitive reality of a relationship, a one-flesh relationship through covenant and procreation in a way that wasn't possible in history. In fact, if you read the early church fathers, those who were writing about sexuality in the first, in the second, in the third, even in the fourth century, the primary purpose of sex, according to them, was procreation. In fact, they had a hard time dealing with the other two aspects we've talked about to the degree that some of them said, look, procreation is important, so you should probably have sex, but don't enjoy doing it, okay? And others would say only sex that is toward the end of procreation is appropriate, even in the confines of marriage. So if your wife is pregnant, if you know you're infertile, if, you are, uh, you know, if your wife is past menopause, you're no longer having babies, then you're no longer sexually active, It's worth remembering that all of these men who penned these words were celibate and single, okay? So their perspective is from the outside looking in. But for centuries, that was the primary means of sexuality. And even as the others were recovered, the other two that we've mentioned were brought in, most often they were seen as secondary to this one. Now, we're trying to remedy that in our talk by balancing them out and recognizing each in their place, although they're interconnected, but we also have to recognize that these technological advances we've made haven't merely separated procreation from the other aspects, it's ignored it entirely, okay? Now, when I'm talking about technology, I'm actually talking pretty broadly, and so as we'll see tonight, I'm also including the modern concept of privacy, okay, which is a relatively new way of talking about life. Let me just remind you that for most of history, in most places, families lived together in a single bedroom. So your sexual relationship was far from private. On top of that, your house was not the place where you escaped from the world around you and from society to your own little castle. It was the place where most society interacted. Business deals were done In your house, if you were a man and a blacksmith, you did your work in the backyard and your neighbors were constantly coming in when you made, uh, you know, community deals. This is why even in the Gospels, when Jesus is having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, a woman comes in and starts weeping at his feet. She's not breaking and entering. They're meeting in a courtyard. It's a normal thing for upper echelon people's dinners to be open to public view, especially if it involved a famous rabbi. OK, the, That's not the only technology, though, of course, we would also have to include um, advancements we've made in contraceptives, as well as technological advance, advancements in fertility, like in vitro fertilization. All of these things have changed the way we think about having babies. OK, I'll give you an example. I was born in 1983, which means, like many people my age in America, I grew up watching Full House and the rest of TGIF, okay? I say that to explain why I'm watching the Netflix series Fuller House, which is all the same characters but grown up. It's really not a great show, but it's a way to introduce my kids to my childhood, and so we've been watching it together. Um, I'm not going to assume, I wouldn't shame you by assuming that you've seen it. But I wanted to point out that one of the characters, Stephanie, who's now an adult, is filling in as being kind of the classic frustrated adolescent millennial, okay? And so she's never really figured out how to make the full-blown leap from adolescence to adulthood. And it plays out in a lot of places in her life. She's bounced around between careers. She's just never really locked into life. And then she discovers in season one that she's infertile. And the possibilities of her having a baby ever are close to none. And so she deals with the pain of this. But in the second season, due to the suggestion of another character, she goes to look in again with another fertility doctor. And they say, actually, although your womb is irreparably damaged, you do have some good eggs left. And so you'd have to operate fast and you'd have to work now. But through a surrogate mother and a sperm donor, you can still have a child, but we'd need to act now. Now, what happens next is unheard of for most of history, and all I want to press is the novelness of where we've gotten technologically. She then starts to consider sperm donors and look for a surrogate apart from, apart from in fact, directly excluding her committed relationship boyfriend, whose relationship I would assume, it's never stated or shown, but I would assume is sexual. In fact, she doesn't want to have this conversation with him because it's such a big responsibility to invite him into parenthood. And so, see there how the conversation of having a child is completely separate from the conversation of a sexual relationship or a marriage relationship or a committed relationship? I don't bring this up to, you know, to shake my finger uh, at the world, but just to point out how unique this is, how different it is historically, okay? Okay. Now, that being said, I also think we live in a day and age where science fiction and science often get confused. And so I want to remind you that despite the fact that there is a lot of things we can do technologically that change the game in that world, there's still some things we can't do, okay? Scientifically, as of what you could go and do right now, you still need a woman's egg and a man's sperm to make a baby, okay? Not only that, but you can only make a baby from one woman's egg or, and one man's sperm, We have no way to splice two men's sperm together genetically so that they're equal parts of the father. Even if you involve a surrogate mother, um, there's still got to be an egg donor. There's a lot of things involved in these things. But although we may be able to clone sheep, we've yet to adapt this technology to human life. And I think it's worth pointing out, okay, that effectively it's not the reality of birth that's changed, but its association with a sexual union, with an act of sex, with a sexual relationship. That's what's changed, okay? Now, I bring that up tonight because we have to actually work to think about the relationship between sex and procreation. What was assumed and natural and almost unavoidable for most of history is now a separate conversation entirely, and so we have to do extra work tonight to reconnect those aspects. Now, as we're going to see, sex and having babies is more than just a byproduct, okay? And that's, yeah, I mean, at the very least, pregnancy is not an STD, okay? But more importantly, it's not merely a byproduct. It is actually closer in relationship to the sexual union than that. In fact, it helps us to understand the significance of the sexual union, Now, one of the books that I've read in the last few years in preparation for this series is called What is Marriage? And it was initially a long-form article written for the Harvard Journal of Law and Policy. And in it, Sharif Gerges and a couple of other authors argue for continuing to see marriage in what they call the conjugal view, that marriage itself as an institution is defined and to be legislated by this reality of the conjugal union, that that is essentially what we mean when we say what is marriage. Now, in this part of the book, they're trying to show the relationship between having a baby and having sex, and I find it to be incredibly helpful for us in understanding what the Bible is talking about here. I'd like to read to you a couple of excerpts. This is what they say. Marriage requires exclusivity with respect to sex, to a certain kind of bodily union, but what makes sex special? Our bodies can touch and interact in all sorts of ways, so why can sexual union make two people one body, or one flesh, to cite an ancient Hebrew scripture in a concept central to many legal and philosophical traditions about marriage? Why can it do this as nothing else can? Start with a more familiar case. Something about your organs, your heart, your stomach, your lungs, makes them one body, one organic substance. But what? It's not that they are all together in space. Rocks in a pile do not make one mineral substance. Nor is it their shared genetic code. Identical twins have roughly one code, but not one body. A transplant patient's heart is part of his body, but differently coded. No, what makes for unity is common action, activity towards common ends. Two things are parts of a greater whole, and they're one if they act as one, and if they act as one, they act as one if they coordinate towards one end that encompasses them both. In short, then, your organs are one body because they're coordinated for a single biological purpose of the whole that they form together, in other words, sustaining your biological life. Just so... For two individuals to unite organically, their bodies must coordinate towards a common biological end of the whole that they form together. Here's the point that they're making, that what makes two people one flesh, what's unique about the sexual act in the context of marriage is that biologically you become one because biologically you move towards the same end, which is having a child. Now, they go on to clarify that you don't have to achieve that end to achieve the unity, okay? So, in other words, this is true of an infertile couple. This is true of a couple using uh, even contraceptives. This is true in general of the act because physically your bodies are working in tandem towards the same goal, whether it's achieved or not, okay? Now, I know that's not generally a way that we think about sexuality, and there's still a lot of questions that we could ask here, but they continue, and I'd like to continue reading. This is what they say, the idea that we're trying to explain is not that the relationship of marriage and the comprehensive good of rearing children always go together, it's that like a ball and socket, they fit together that family life specially enriches marriage, that marriage is especially apt for family life, which shapes its norms. A more promising way to explain this connection between marriage and family life is to consider how other bonds are specially related to certain goods via certain activities. Ordinary friendships, for example, are unions of minds and wills, by which each friend comes to know and seeks the other good. So they are sealed Friends are most obviously and truly befriending in conversations and common pursuits. Scholarly relationships are most embodied in joint inquiry, discovery, and publication. Drama troupes in rehearsals and shows. There is a parallel, in other words, between the common good to which any bond is ordered and the activity that most embodies it. To be clear, it's not just that certain activities symbolize the fact that a relationship is of this and that type. They partly make it so. A baseball team does not just show the world what it is through practice and games. Rather, playing the game is how teammates make themselves more truly what they've committed to being together. Okay. What I want to highlight there is what they say at the end, that this act doesn't just symbolize the union, it partly makes it so. Okay. There are, as we saw last week... A lot of ways that two people can share life. And what's unique about the marriage relationship is envisioned in Bible in the Bible is it's a sharing of all life. Okay? A full exposure and vulnerability, a knowing and being known. But the biological union towards the end of procreation is uniquely sharing biologically, in a way that no other relationship and no other physical act with another person is. And so we really can't talk about the unitive nature of sexuality without recognizing the procreative aspect. But we can lay out all this on the table, and we can recognize that this is a part of sexuality. In fact, it's not a part that's unique to human sexuality, is it? Procreation or reproduction is encoded into all life, and many other forms of animal life also share a male-female sexual union that produces offspring, whether through an egg or through an embryo, uh, uh, whether, whether you know, involving like mammals, um, procreation closer to ours, or like birds, eggs. There's differences. We also know of animals um, that reproduce asexually in different ways. Okay. But remember that this reality of procreation is bound up, bound up in God creating us in the image of God, right? It has something to do with who God is. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is procreation so closely related to sex? Is God fully capable of creating human beings without the act of sex? Absolutely. Not only is that where the story begins as he forms Adam out of the ground and Eve asexually right out of his side... But also, Jesus' birth avoids this natural and normal process of a sexual union between two adults, right? That's what makes it a virgin birth. So, why the correlation between these two things? See, this is bound up in the statement that God makes in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, one that we've revisited multiple times, when God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone, okay? Okay? We need to read that through the lenses of what we've already seen. First, it's not good for man, Adam, to be alone because there's no female. And it's male and female that were created in the image of God, that are needed to reflect his character. And so male alone is incomplete, insufficient, not enough, unfinished. But also we can look at that story and its fulfillment and read it's not good for man to be alone and see it in the second one, that what he needs specifically is a companion, and so God brings not just a woman, but a wife. But even those two realities encoded into that statement do not satisfy the full weight of the meaning of that it is not good. What we need to recognize is that it is not good that man should be alone. It's bound in its biggest and broadest sense in the calling that Adam has been given to rule and have dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, Adam's problem is not just singleness, it's solitude. And what he needs is not a spouse, but a community. In fact, if you keep reading the story, that's exactly what happens, right? We go from Adam to Adam and Eve to Adam and Eve and babies, and then it grows on into a city by the end of chapter four. There's this move, this trajectory in scripture from the two initial parents, one taken from the side of the other, so the one man at the beginning, all the way through to society, to culture. The idea there of of, uh, fruitfulness is more than just babies, it's community, it's society, it's culture, it's all of these things. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, what do you find? You find private suites for individual salvations of particular people. No, you find a mass of every tribe and tongue representing all worldly cultures who have become one family in Jesus Christ. Okay? The Bible ends with a city, even though it begins with a garden. That's significant. What we're saying tonight is that this this aspect of procreation doesn't just symbolize that need it partly makes it so. It partly moves in its fulfillment. Like what his marriage points to. It's not just that in the desire for children, we also find a desire for more than just a companion. But in procreation, we actually add to human beings as a whole. We create community. In fact, let me just point out to you the obvious, that there is no community for Adam and Eve apart from having children right? That's where it begins. Now, this is why I've labeled this aspect as social sexuality because you don't merely need a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. You don't merely need a sexual relationship. It is not good for a man to be alone applies. You need a family. You need community. You need society. Now, Some people have criticized this concept of social sexuality because in an already over-sexualized world, sexualizing every relationship is problematic. And I actually think that's an appropriate criticism and an obvious danger, okay? That when we use the word sexuality in our time, it always involves sex. (laughs) But when the critics point to this, this is how they often do it. This is how Megan DeFranza criticizes this terminology. She says, look... There are plenty of relationships in life that are communal, but should never be sexual. And the illustration she points to is a mother who's nursing a child. And she says that relationship is intimate, it's close, it's valuable, but it should never be sexual. And we would all agree. But let's recognize that there is no nursing infant without sex. There is no community at all, at large. There's no one to be in relationship to without Sexual relationships that it's grounded on what I'm telling you tonight And this is why sex is so important at the community level is that sex is the cement the society is built on And not every relationship should be sexual but without sex there is no one to be in relationship with Consider your first community your family Most of those relationships are non-sexual Hopefully, accurately, appropriately, and ethically, only one relationship out of all of the ones of interconnected in your family is sexual, but all the others are a consequence of that sexual relationship. It forms the boundaries of your family because you all share in and participate the consequence of that sexual union. Now, I know that we live in a time where often that representation, that reality is convoluted. And so your brothers and sisters are only half brothers and sisters or one of your parents is out of the picture or maybe you're not the consequence of a sexual relationship but a single unrelationship sexual union and you've never even met the other participant. All of those things can be true but remember what the authors of What is Marriage point out. The issue isn't that these things always go together, it's that they're uniquely fitted to go together. Here's what I'm saying. I'm not merely saying that the marriage relationship should point beyond itself, although I think that should be obvious, okay? That what God envisions for marriage is not you finding a person and then moving alone to an island and finding some sort of satisfaction in your privacy. You need more than that. You need more than merely a romantic romantic spouse. You need community. And so a married couple needs more than just One another, they need other relationships that are non sexual, of a diverse variety of family and friends, of neighbors and society. This is part of the human design. But it is worth pointing out, even tonight, that in all the ways that a married couple should participate in and even benefit society at large, having children is a unique. Unique to the marriage relationship, unique to the sexual union relationship, uniquely biological participation in community, moving towards that end. Now we need to make a few clarifications. Okay. The first is because of that emphasis alone on procreation that has plagued the church, that is birthed out of a cultural view that says sex is probably dirty and bad and has no idea how to handle a book like Song of Solomon that carries a very different message. Since that's the case, there is still a common ethic in procreation that basically says each and every sexual act is only properly righteous, ethical, and Christian if it's, in the words of the Catholic Church, quote, open to conception. That every sexual act over the course of a relationship, one by one, individually, is to be filtered through this thing. Is it currently open to conception? Now, one of the problems with that view is it has a hard time dealing with sex where conception is not possible. Like when a woman is already pregnant. Like uh, when, uh, when you know your spouse is infertile. Like when you are past your childbearing years. Now, the Catholic Church would just point out and go, but we do have stories of places where God has gone outside of the confines of nature and given elderly couples children, made infertile couples fertile. And that's absolutely true. But I would argue that the way the Bible talks about these things, what it's really saying is that this relationship, this relationship that involves sex, the relationship should be open to conception. And I would say it's very difficult to remove that from what the Bible envisions. And this is another place where we butt up against the standards of our culture. I'll tell you honestly, in my own conversations with people, both inside and outside the church, there are many couples who are married and are reluctant to bring children into a world like this. They feel like to do so would be irresponsible. Or maybe they look at our burgeoning human population and they don't want to add to the mess. In fact, every once in a while, I, having five children, get an askance look because I'm part of the problem. Those things are part of our culture, but we must remember both that God created procreation with a purpose and that he also blessed them in the giving He didn't just say, be fruitful and multiply, it says, and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. In fact, the Bible maintains and sustains that children are indeed a blessing from the Lord. In fact, this is an important note to make. The sexual union in and of itself doesn't make a baby. It's a relatively nuanced process, and the Bible constantly recognizes the fact that even though we participate in procreation through the sexual union, it's God who gives the child. But in saying so, it also reminds us that children are a blessing, that God's not merely the giver, but the children are gifts. And it's easy for us to neglect or to forget that in our modern world. And so, for example, just by way of illustration, Psalm 127 speaks of children this way. Don't worry about turning there because I'm just going to read it as soon as I arrive. But here's what it says in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are indeed a blessing. Now, clearly that brings up the question of contraception. And we're not going to talk about it now, but I would be glad to talk about it in the Q&A. Because I do think we have to take those realities that we've presented and then go, okay, now what about this reality of technology? Okay. Technology inherently falls into one of three camps. Some technology is morally neutral, like a scalpel. It can be used for good, can be used for evil. It's just a tool, right? It's like that trite saying that we sometimes use, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Some technology we see as morally neutral. Some technology is inherently towards evil ends and can't really be redeemed, okay? And other technology maybe is positive and it's very hard to abuse. And so we can't just go, well, all technology falls into this or even this version of this technology. There's questions to be asked, but we'll deal with that later. Instead, what I want to point out is the society... That the Bible envisions, the community that the Bible envisions. When you look in the Old Testament, the community is built on the backs of family, of your biological family. And we see this pattern a couple of times play out. And so it begins with Adam and Eve, and then we see them moving towards a society. Not only in chapter 4 do we have a city, but we also have a division of labor, not just within the family, but the trades happen, right? We see this cultivation. And then after the flood, we see the same thing. And so Noah and his wife have three sons, and their wives between them make up all the nations that make the context of the Old Testament story, okay? And then when we get to Abraham, the promise God gives Abraham is a promise of fruitfulness built around his family. I will give you many descendants, more than you can count stars in the sky or sand on the seashore, I will give you, right? And then we watch as this man and his barren wife miraculously have a baby, and that that son and his barren wife miraculously have a baby, and then that son and his barren wife and another wife and two concubines have 12 babies. And through that, we get the 12 tribes and then the nation of Israel. And the story follows this single family through the entire Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, you will see that having babies is a big deal. And for it's for a couple of reasons, Okay. One is, fruitfulness for Abraham's family is built into the promise. It's what God is doing. The second is, what God has promised Israel is inherently future tense. And so how do you as an individual participate in that future hope? By passing on your line so that your children are there with front row tickets. Okay. And then third, if you read the covenant that God makes with Israel, barrenness or fruitfulness is a measurement of faithfulness. It's one of the ways that the nation will know that they've strayed from God is that they will no longer be as fruitful biologically as they were. They'll start to experience infertility and infanticide and, the, and things like this. Whereas if they follow the Lord, it says in the end of Deuteronomy, they will be abundantly fruitful in having babies. And so for the Jewish mind, infertility was seen as a curse. In fact, by the days of Jesus, many rabbis advocated that infertility was grounds for divorce because these things were so important. And so we see this emphasis on family in the Old Testament. But we don't find the same emphasis in the New Testament. In fact, although I do have concerns about our modern culture being anti-children, Or making children a necessary aspect of self-fulfillment, making children about me, instead of what the Bible says, actually the first thing pressing beyond your romantic relationship, the first thing that is essentially and wholly other, right? A move towards community and other people. Um, But we also have to recognize that we don't live in a homogenous culture. America has a whole lot of real estate. And what's developed in this whole lot of real estate is no longer a unified worldview, but one that is constantly and consistently divided in its perspective. So we have to own up to the fact that there is another portion that also gets it wrong in a different way, and oftentimes that portion exists within the church, and it idolizes the family. It says that Christianity is ultimately a religion of family values. And one of the ways I know that this has gone sideways is because they try and remake Jesus in their image And trying to make Jesus all about family values is tremendously difficult. For those of you who know your Gospels, just take a moment and reflect on the words and the works of Jesus and find your family values. Now, granted, Jesus loved children. In fact, not only did he say, don't turn them away from me, but bring them to me, but he also said, anyone who wants to be a part of my kingdom must become like them. He criticized the Pharisees for not supporting their families, their parents in particular in their old age, and instead making that gift a gift for God. Whatever it is, is Corbin. But outside of recognizing those things, the majority of the times that Jesus references family do not fit our family as ultimate paradigm. Remember that this is Jesus who never married or had children. Surprisingly unique for a 30-plus-year-old man in Israel. Remember that Jesus when his own mother and brothers came looking for him and his, he was talking to his disciples and somebody came from the door because it was so crowded they couldn't even get in and said, your mother and your brothers are here. And he said, who is my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of the Lord. Remember, this is Jesus who called people to such radical discipleship. He said, unless you hate your mother or your father or your brother or your sister, you cannot be my disciple. Remember that this is Jesus when the man who came to him said, I will follow you after I bury my father. He said, let the dead bury their dead. As for you, you come and follow me. In fact, we see this continuing in the New Testament church. And so by the time we get to the letters of Paul, he's not merely accepting, but advocating singleness as a beneficial option for Christians. If you're unaware of this fact, The Jews believed that be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.27 was actually a commandment, one of the 613, that all Jewish men were required to fulfill. Rabbis were commonly saying things like, if you do not have children, you are not yet a man. And Paul looks, fully, fully grown up in that camp, fully familiar with the scriptures, and he says, those of you who aren't married should consider remaining so. When we read that, we read that as being abstaining from sex. The big ticket item in a Jewish mind would have been abstaining from having children. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament do we find a repeated call for procreation, nowhere. Kids are assumed and so we have in Colossians and Ephesians in the household codes explanations of how parents should treat their children and how children should treat their parents. But this call to be fruitful and multiply, to have babies, is missing. We have to understand the significance of the story God tells and what changes in Jesus to understand how we apply this tonight to ourselves. What God envisions in it's not good for man to be alone being fulfilled. Turn to the book of Galatians. With all of my heart, I hope that you're familiar with the chapters we're going to look at tonight. They are full of profound realities of what God accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Profound relationship between God's promises to Abraham and the plan is fulfilled in Jesus. But I want to point out to you something that you probably miss most often that bears noticing tonight. Look with me in Galatians chapter 3. Now, Paul here is going back to the same place where the nation of Israel begins, with the promises made to Abraham. And read what he says in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what he says. He says that all of the promises that were given to Abraham were ultimately given to his seed, and he's not talking about the nation of Israel, but somebody singularly, Jesus. Now, this still shows why procreation was significant in the Old Testament, because by having a baby, your baby might be the promised one. And we see that expectation in the Old Testament. And so, right after the initial promise that God would set things right through the seed of a woman. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve has a baby named Cain. And do you know what she says? She says, I've received a man who is the Lord. That's what it says literally there in the Hebrew. Now, she was wrong. Cain wasn't Jesus. He was a murderer. But the expectation was there. Later on, Noah's father, Lamech, when Noah is born, he says, Ah, here is one who will give people rest looking back on the curse and the toil and these types of things. Now, he was wrong. Instead, his son was the sole survivor with his family of a worldwide flood, of the judgment of God, but the expectation was there. And Paul recognizes rightly here that the Messiah has come. And so the promises were given directly to him. So what does this mean for us? Notice what he says a little bit later in chapter 3. Look at what he says in verse 25. I want you to notice the opening words of that, but now. Okay, then a promise was given anticipation, expectation, waiting for fulfillment, waiting for the one to come. But now, it says here in verse 25 now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And he says at an earlier point in this passage. that through these promises given to Jesus, we are grafted in to Abraham's family. In fact, look, look at what he says, continuing in verse 27. For as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. And so because we are in Christ, have union with him, now, we are heirs of the same promises given to Israel, not because we've become Jewish, but because Jesus has been given the fulfillment, the sum total of all of those promises. Okay? Now, this says something specifically to you if you're single tonight. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, singleness uniquely expresses the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. That God's salvation is full enough enough and great enough and that the blessings are deep enough in Jesus Christ alone for a fulfilling and totally satisfying life. That's one of the points that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But not only have we been grafted into Abraham's life, become part of the people of Israel, but as we saw just a second ago, and as he makes clear in the next chapter, something deeper has happened. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son in your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We haven't just been adopted into Abraham's family, but God's. And so he finishes this passage here by saying, verse 7, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You see, the reason why there's such a hardcore transition in Jesus' ministry and the rest of the New Testament on the relationship of procreation is because the community that God has envisioned has changed. First, because Jesus in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, has come. And second, because through Jesus we have been adopted, not merely into the family of Abraham, but into the family of God himself. Now, now we can understand why Paul says that singleness is okay. In fact, we can understand what we just read, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, free nor slave, male and female, that all of those are set aside because they no longer get us in to the family. We're already completely, totally, each one of us totally in. There are no boundaries to the community anymore. They've all been cleared in Jesus Christ. And so, singleness is now an option. And so, we can make sense of Jesus' radical call to allegiance He's not saying give up and forsake family, forsake community because of what I'm offering you in salvation is uniquely individual. It's just me and Jesus. That's, that's not what he lays out. It's a new community known as the church. And that's why Jesus never disparages the family, but in contrast to something deeper. Effectively, he says that your family blood ties are nothing on the blood of Christ ties. What do we find when we look at this new family the Bible calls the church? We discover that it is tremendously, tremendously a place of acceptance. We find that it's a place where because we're all known as sinners and forgiven in Jesus Christ, all other aspects of status, earning approval, achievement, demonstrating that we belong are removed. We see that it's a place of tremendous care and love to the degree that the New Testament church took the things that they owned and sold them to support one another. And Luke intentionally quotes the book of Deuteronomy and says about that early Jerusalem church that there was no poor among them, which by the way is one of the promises of God to Israel if they were faithful to the covenant. He says this is it. This is the fulfillment. This is what it's supposed to be like. Put these ideas together and consider this with me. That for the Christian, marriage and family is optional. Membership in the church is not. I know we don't always feel that. And the reason we don't always feel that is because we don't always live up to this new family of God community that the church is supposed to be. This is my dream for this church. This is my dream for the church. That we would be such a loving close-knit, caring community that practically, for people, the marriage relationship would be optional. That practically, estrangement from family would not be the emotional death sentence that it is. In fact, Jesus points out, Jesus points out that these realities of what the church is supposed to be and being grafted into God's family and all becoming one family. In fact, the New Testament goes further. It doesn't just say that we're merely brothers and sisters, although it does say that. Read First Timothy chapter 5. It says that we're one body and many members. It stresses a closer relationship than even the relationship we have with family, one that our organs share is what we have in Jesus Christ. But Jesus himself makes clear that this is a specifically important truth for those whose discipleship and following Jesus cost them relationship. Listen to what he says here in Mark chapter 10. This is right after Jesus has made this profound proclamation that it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into heaven. He's talking about the cost of discipleship, that you have to disconnect with your identity, with your wealth, and step away from it. And Peter can't miss out on the opportunity to remind Jesus that they've left things behind. Listen to how Jesus responds. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left his house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. That stuff he's talking about, that great family, is not just a heavenly reality. He says, and after that, eternal life. What is the church supposed to be like? It's to be a father to the fatherless, a family to those without family. There are occasions where Jesus draws such a difficult line in the sand that when it's crossed, it's isolating, it's separating. Jesus himself said, Look, don't think that I came to bring peace, but a sword, a sword that cuts through the household and divides parents and children. That reality is true, and in our time, it's truer than ever. But the church is to be such a family that they gain more. The church is not a consolation prize to those who are estranged, it's the real community that God envisioned to be a full reality of love. And what does this have to do with the image of God? Why does he code community into sexuality in such a way that even our sexual act moves towards more people? For one, it's because God is community, because God is triune. We've seen that God is personal and so our embodied reality reflects that. We've seen that God is relational and it's this loving unity and between the Father and Son, it's close, but that still doesn't exhaust who God is. God is not duality. He is triune. He is a crowd. He is community. It's part of who He is and so He's dev- designed us socially to reflect that. But more than that, more than that, we reflect where God is going that he's making a family and adopting in children and that at the end of the story like I said when we get to the end in the book of revelation all the barriers are broken down all people are united in the blood of Jesus Christ from every tribe every tongue every ethnicity and they will be his people and he will be their god and so these things are significant because they point to what God has designed us for. He's designed us for family. And as amazing as it is, not just a family, but his family. Let's pray. God, I know that there's two truths that dog us tonight. Two brute facts of history. One is... That our families are not what they should be. And so our concepts of family are skewed by our personal experience. And two, that the church doesn't live up to what it should be either. But we see in this the foundation, the foundation for what you're doing in the church. We see in it the aspiration, the ideal of where you're taking us. And we see in it the destiny that will come to fruition because he who promised these things is faithful. I ask God that you would cultivate in us a desire for community, not on our, t- on our terms, without commitment, freely allowing us to sustain our autonomy, but something better, something greater, a real family. I pray, Lord, for those who are married and those who will be married, who will have to have conversations and considerations about children. I ask, Lord, that they wouldn't start so easily from the starting place of our culture, seeing that as merely as a means to our own fulfillment or a way to worship our own idols or something to be avoided because it's a responsibility, but instead we will see it in the context as it was designed as part of the sexual relationship, as fitted with the bearing of children, as a blessing right from your hand as a, and as a unique fulfillment of our need for community. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Once again, the number is there. If you have questions to text in, I'm going to transfer over and get things up and running. Give me just a second. Here we go. With the connection between sex and procreation and community, as you stated, sex is cement that holds the society and community together. What are the problems you foresee in the recent division of sex from procreation? Um, Let's actually talk about a couple of them. First off, um, family is our initial training ground for understanding how human relationships work. Any failure in the family is manifest in our relationships with other people. And so that in and of itself gives reasons to to have concern here. But specifically with the the problems I foresee in the recent division of sex from procreation, um, there's a couple of them. And let's let's take some of this technology for example. Um, Consider... Consider the possibilities with in vitro fertilization. In fact, let's muddy the, muddy the waters quite a bit. Let's imagine a situation where there, is, uh, where there is an egg donor or a sperm donor and a surrogate mother. Okay, so someone is carrying the baby. Somebody has donated one half of its genetic code. Now, that's actually become a lot more common. Um, so, for example, if uh, there's an article in Esquire called How Two Men Have a Baby... And uh, in it, this gay couple walks through their story of having babies, and they point out that to do it without a surrogate mother, to just have a woman provide her own eggs and carry the baby to term, creates a legal issue because she has legal rights over the baby. And so the standard practice now is to find a separate and anonymous donor and someone to carry it to term so that there's no legal battle in that. What I want to point out in the complications I see in this is primarily for the child's sake. Consider the commercials you see all the time for Ancestry.com. Okay? We recognize the significance of not merely just our ethnic heritage but our genetic heritage. And by convoluting, by muddying the waters, uh, we, we are um, disconnecting the biological relationship as manifests in our genes between where people come from. Okay. Um, that is just built in to the self-focus that we have in having kids, okay? And so now we live in a world where having babies is ultimately about me, and it's manifested in a lot of ways. And so when we talk about, um, for example, a pro-choice opinion, it's that this is ultimately about my body. And even if you have a potential baby's body, it's never about the baby. First and foremost, it's about us. IVF and these technologies that confuse these correlations and muddy the waters of family don't actually think about the child. In fact, most sperm donors uh, have a privacy shield. So even if you know that you came through that process, you can't track down your your biological parent. And I have to say that with an asterisk because obviously it's not biological in the act, but biological in the material, Okay. Um, I think those concerns uh, are unaddressed, actually. I don't think that there's arguments being made that these things don't matter. I think they're not talked about, okay? Like Chesterton said about Christianity, he said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been difficult and left untried. And one of the dangers of technology is it's so convenient we stop thinking, okay? That's why we need science fiction because it asks the questions before we get to the technology and not after. As we become more content with Jesus and joyous apart from circumstances, how much can we expect desire for romantic relationship to recede? I think this is a really good question, and I want to just add one other thing. Um, So this emphasizes what a relationship with Jesus does in our life, which tilts the scales, right? What does Paul say in Philippians? Everything else that used to matter to me, I count as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. That's true. But what we're talking about tonight is more significant than that. It's not just because you have a relationship with Jesus, it's also because you have this community, the church. And I think that's essentially important because singleness is not a call to be alone, period. Even if it's a God-given gift, It's not a call to isolation. It's still a call to community, just community apart from marriage. Okay? And so we have to keep that on the table when we answer this. I do think we also need to do one other thing before we answer it, which is recognize that there are um, aspects of the desire for romantic relationship um, which are sustained and positive and undifficult. And then there are other ones that are sustained and very difficult. You know, wanting to be married and feeling the emptiness of not being married, we have to kind of peel apart, okay? Either way, it's worth pointing out, um, it's worth pointing out that like every other human life, it's a mixed bag of fulfillment and disappointment. And we have to watch out for this mistake of thinking that married people are naturally more fulfilled than single people. Um, Because the truth is, there's a lot of people who feel stuck in difficult marriages, who have to wrestle with things that they thought would no longer be a part of their life, who feel tremendously alone in the presence of their spouse. These are real things, okay? Um, But I do think that if our broad need for God's love and a loving community are met, that it really does change the way we think about these things. I was speaking with a single friend of mine recently. Um, she's, She's a little bit older in her singleness, And she started to at least weigh the possibility that marriage is not in the cards for her. And she'd like to get married. But she was telling me about this guy that she is currently dating. And she said, you know what? Because of this church, because of the relationship I have here, I just don't feel like so much is riding on this relationship. I think she's feeling something real. Okay? Um, But... But even our longings are good when they're unfulfilled because they point to real things. Like we've been talking about this series, you may never have a husband on earth, but with the rest of the church, you have a husband in heaven. And although although uh, that doesn't deny the beauty of the marriage relationship, it does put it in its setting. It does put it in its context. It does help us to see it as penultimate. You talked about the church being designed to be such a tight-knit, loving, vulnerable community that full participation in the church would make marriage optional to full flourishing. That sounds great in theory, but I've never been part of a Christian group, large or small, that matches the description. How do you see that principle working out practically in our fallen world? Uh, With great thought and work. And I will say that at best, I've tasted the first fruits of these things, okay? Okay. Um, but there are some things that we've done intentionally recognizing the way the church was designed in the New Testament that lead to this. For example, we cannot get around the fact that what love looks like in a community um, involves commitment. Okay? Now, our church doesn't actually practice any form of membership, but it's probably not for the reason you think it is. The reason we don't practice any form of membership is because the only memberships I'm familiar with in church Concepts stem from denominationalism a century ago and are basically about us not being them. And I haven't had time yet to reach deeper into the early church and study these things, Um, but you can't get around the idea of commitment. So, for example, there were widows in the church who were now the responsibility of the church to take care of. And Paul makes clear in, in 1 Timothy 5 that if they have families, they should be fully participating in that act, but if they don't, they have us as family. And, you know, the context was different. There was no social security. There was no government aid. All those things matter. Retirement was not a thing in the ancient world. But but we have to move in that direction. We've reestablished the deacon ministry here. A group of people committed to taking care of the physical needs of the church in the same way the pastors take care of the spiritual needs. And so we have watched as, for example, when a single mother who loses her job, and that would usually squeeze her out of our community, draws her into the community. Because we see it, and we deal with it, and we deal with it together. Um, I will tell you that another part, and this is not fun, is that if a community is going to be vulnerable, somebody has to lead in vulnerability. And that's scary. Somebody has to do the dangerous work of being honest. And many of us have probably encountered occasions where that does not go well. But on the other hand, if you don't keep trying, it never goes anywhere. For this relationship to exist, there has to be leading and vulnerability. And the advantage of our church is that we've got a lot that makes us vulnerable. And so it's kept these things in the light. And I'll tell you frankly, as a pastor, every once in a while, I'll realize that I can't think of anything going wrong in my church and I get really nervous because I know how life works. It's not that things are going well, it's that things are being hidden. And so there's a spiritual aspect to that, and we try and really walk in what First John calls us to, to walk in the light. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar and do not practice truth. But when you walk in the light, you have fellowship with God and with one another. That means honesty. You mentioned that every sexual relationship should be open to conception. Could you elaborate some on that? How would you counsel a young married Christian couple who don't feel ready for children? I think there is such a thing as responsible childbearing. Okay. Let me tell you my own story just to give some image on this. Um, My son was born about as soon as one can be born after marriage. Um, And then my second son followed a year and two weeks after. So almost as close as they could be together. Now, for my wife, this is what that meant. It meant that for two and a half years, she was hormonally different than her normal self, whether she was pregnant or nursing or pregnant again or nursing. Um, And so with with my second born, she had a severe postpartum depression. And one of the things that was weighing on her the heaviest was what if we get pregnant again? Now, at the time, I had some concerns about the pill and certain forms of birth control. Um, but I was also concerned for my wife, and we'd never done our due diligence and looked for ourselves. And so, so I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put you on the pill, and then we're going to do some research, and we're going to figure this out. And as I researched the pill, I discovered that there are reasons for a Christian who believes that life begins with conception to be concerned about the pill. The pill works primarily in three different ways. And the third one is that it creates uh, a slippery uh, surface to the uterine lining, So, if an egg was fertilized, it wouldn't stick. Now, we have no way to test of those three versions how often it gets to stage three, but it's potentially abortive. In fact, I went to our physician, and I said, this is my understanding of how the pill works, is this correct? And she said, yes. While we were doing that, we also discovered something known as natural family planning, and I want to be clear here that that's not the same thing as the rhythm method. But natural family planning is what we used for the rest of responsibly having our children, basically every two years following when we started having children for all of our girls. Um, And it was a great form of contraception. But here's what I liked about it. First off, it involved no chemicals or substances or textures or textiles or anything, okay? It involved my wife knowing her body, listening to what it was saying. Second... My wife's cycle that this whole thing is built on is a God-given design. And so, effectively, we saw this as playing by the rules of pregnancy, okay? You are fertile sometimes of the month and unfertile other times of the month if you're a woman. That's by design, okay? And so, so all of that to say that I think there is a way, for us anyways, where, anyways there was a way to say, We are open to children, just not yet. Full disclosure, I've had a vasectomy. We are open to children, and we have five of them. We feel like that's enough. Okay? Um, Those are decisions of conscience that should be considered. um, But I do want to press against, and I've met married couples, whose reasons they don't feel ready are bad reasons. Because they have some sort of a gold-at-the-end-of-the-rainbow vision of where you need to get to in life before you can responsibly have kids. And I'll tell you that my first kid was born on a $600 intern stipend, and I have no regrets, okay? My wife and I have tasted full frontal poverty. We've never been homeless, we've never gone hungry, but we lived a life without amenities for a long time. Our only television for the first three years of our life, uh, or our only internet, uh, and therefore our only access to the external world was my work cell phone that happened to be a smartphone. There are so many things that our world says you need to be comfortable that are just a farce. And a lot of times when people say we're being responsible, what they really mean is they're being selfish. And I really think that's something that should be weighed. Because we live in a world that doesn't get the joy of children. And I can tell you firsthand that we knew it was time to stop on five, but it's tough for us, and we spend a boatload of time babysitting. Because children are a difficult blessing, but a blessing nonetheless. Hi. We just started attending this church and really appreciate the fact that you're welcoming questions. Here's my question. God create us in his image. How do you reconcile this verse with modern Darwin point of view as an opposition with the creationist one sent by an agnostic who's been attending the church for the last three years? Or specifically attending church. Um, so... Instead of trying to explain a creationist versus Darwinian viewpoint tonight, um, what I'd like to do instead is is talk about the um, philosophy of Darwinian evolution and not the science. And the challenge that I would present uh, to this question is that if you take a full-on Darwinian viewpoint of uh, as a philosophy, so not just scientifically this is how we got here but this explains all there is. Okay. The problem you have with that is not merely, not merely that it causes us to question our sexual ethic it causes us to question any significant meaning in life. If the explanation for life and its meaning is merely biological then there is no greater meaning. And so the The idea here that God created us in his image is a profound one to be considered by the modern world in the same way it was in the ancient world, but for different reasons. In the ancient world, this concept of the image of God was a common one for royalty. Kings were created in the image of God. They reflected his image. And the Bible unilaterally applied this to all human life and challenged that belief and said, no, all human life is significantly connected to God. The view in most worlds of most humans' lives was a view of slavery, that you were subject to the arbitrary gods of life, that you were just a mere mortal on the coils of the world, right, and they were somehow ruling over. It's only the Christian viewpoint that anciently gives a dignity to mankind and a value to it. In the modern world, the Darwinian viewpoint does the same thing. It makes us a slave, not to some abject, arbitrary gods, but a slave to our genes, a slave to our chemical, chemicals, a slave to cause and effect and consequence in perpetuity. If that's all there is, then love is no longer significant. Ethics is no longer significant. In fact, it's Darwinian evolution that has led to eugenic philosophies of survival of the fittest, not just being nature, but ethic. And so it's very difficult to say survival of the fittest that evolution is all there is, that passing on the genes is most important, and say rape is bad in the same breath. And I'm just going to assume, whoever this asker is, that they are seeking because they're unsatisfied. we can talk about the science any other time, but I think that's enough for, for now. Did Adam and Eve and their children procreate the earth, or were there others? Okay this is similar to a question uh, that comes up all the time, which is basically, where did Cain get his wife, right? The story tells us we have Adam and Eve, and then there's Cain, and he kills, he kills Abel, and then he goes off, and he starts a civilization which involves a wife. Clearly, the implied biblical answer is that this is one of his sisters. Now, side note, I'm not really sure that a non-Christian viewpoint can get aside from, get around this reality. Biologically, even from a Darwinian viewpoint, I think we still have to begin with two people having sex, okay, and then those people's offspring having sex. I don't think we really get away with that, get away from that. But the second thing uh, to keep in mind uh, is is that the the negative genetics we've observed of what we would call incest. Um, are technically, genetically a different game than what we're talking about in the first few generations of a biological form. Like I said, it's, it's essentialist. There's no getting away from it. If there's only two, then those two and their offspring procreate to create more. That's just the way it works. Um, now, the other thing I hear in this is, or were there others, is this backdoor for some Christians that says, maybe maybe Adam and Eve are significant founders of humans, but not all humans. In other words, maybe we can graph the Genesis story into an evolutionary standpoint, um, and it's just an origin of Homo sapien, but not all origin. Maybe that's how we can answer that. The biggest challenge is Romans 5, which basically says that your sinful reality as a human being The fact not just that you're a sinner and therefore you sin but that you sin because you're a sinner is rooted in the fact that you were in Adam that he is our first parents that we all trace our lineage to the same person and his wife who was created out of his side Um, and so so these are ideas that are easy to abandon um, but difficult to sustain from a biblical perspective For the same sex attracted, or they just resigned to a celibate life, what do they do with this apparent quote, "cross that they have to bear their whole life, namely, burning with passion with no relief? Is this just a consequence of the fall? Um, looking to consummation as the only respite. OK? Um, first, a few things. When we look at the things we've learned in the last th- last three weeks, we see that a monogamous same-sex relationships still fall short of what the Bible envisions for the relationship it's talking about. And so we saw that sexuality should be embodied, and that means male and female. And the same-sex relationship doesn't recognize that aspect physically. Um, We saw that in a committed covenant relationship, that because that's the smallest aspect of what community is, it needs both male and female, and that complementarity of male and female, is part of what it means for Adam to be completed by a wife. Um, Not because she's another, but because she's another suitable to him, because she's uniquely corresponding. Um, And then as we saw tonight, procreation is an aspect of how sex was designed, and that's something that only operates uh, and is uniquely fitted with heterosexual sex. Also, it's worth pointing out that the Bible, um, when it does mention same-sex relationship and action, maintains a negative point of view. With that being said, the real question here is, what does that mean for somebody dealing with same-sex attraction? But there's a good deal of ideology in here that we might just take for granted, and I think it's worth addressing. Um, The first is, for many same-sex attracted people, it's not exclusively same-sex attraction. For men more than women, uh, sexuality tends to be hardwired, is the phrase they would lead, less flexible, less fluid, Um, and it tends to be more exclusive. In other words, if you take a survey of people's sexual attraction, you'll find more bisexual women than you'll find bisexual men. But many of the same-sex attracted people I do, who, whether they fall on that spectrum or not, are in committed heterosexual monogamous relationships. Now, it's easy for us as a culture to assume that they got there by mistake, but if you honestly talk to them, you'll find that they have found benefits, albeit difficulty, in that relationship, and I just think categorically that's something missing from the discussion. Second, there's another thing we need to recognize here. When it says burning with passion with no relief, we're very much drawing from a Freudian idea that sees our sexual desires like a pressure cooker. And if they're not dealt with, then we will deal with them in some negative way. Okay? Once again, that's a relatively modern idea. Now, it is worth mentioning that Paul counsels people to get married if they, quote, burn with passion. And I'm not trying to throw that reality under the bus, but I do think we need to recognize that that reality is true of all people. Outside of marriage, all people widowed or single or never married, uh, that those, uh, those have to be unexpressed and that that's doable and feasible and I would say even fulfilling. And once again, I just say, look at Jesus. I spoke with a man a while ago and he said, well, don't you think, don't you think that in biblical times people got married so much earlier this wasn't such a pressing issue? And I would say, absolutely. But men in Roman and Jewish times generally got married in their late 20s or early 30s. Okay? There was still a large period of adulthood uh, post-puberty that was undealt with, and yet the ethic was the same. Now, the other thing I would mention is that, in a sense, yes, I think the Bible calls them to, to bear the cost of this, but it doesn't call them to bear it alone. As I mentioned in the sermon this evening, Jesus recognizes that sometimes Not only will there be division that causes people to choose Jesus over family, and it includes spouses there, um, but that they would receive a full supporting and loving community. And I'll speak to you who maintain a traditional sexual ethic on this issue and are part of a church. If we can't be a church of that kind of love, then yes, we are condemning the same sex attracted to a terrible life. We have to be a community that carries that burden with them, that eases it for it. I would say that about singles as well. The church has spent too much time over the last few decades upholding marriage to the degree that singleness was second-class citizen status and that it was only something that people pass through until they get married. And if you haven't got married, the church's advice for you is just wait, or even worse, get your act together, or these types of things, Um, We have to have room for singles to be loved and full participants in the community of Christ, or these things, of course, are going to ring hollow and difficult because that's not how they were designed. Okay, let me reload and pull up some more questions here. Can it be okay for a married Christian couple not to desire children? Can marriage without having children be God's will? Now, I want to answer that second question first, because we have to recognize if God is the giver of children, then some couples he doesn't give children to. So we have to maintain a yes in that answer. And that can be okay, and it can also be terribly difficult. The Bible recognizes, as we've talked about, not only God's creation design, but also the fact that we live in a fallen world, and that includes the realities of infertility and difficulty in conceiving. Um, But none of that escapes a sovereign God's will, right? And so, so the answer has to be yes. Now, can a couple responsibly avoid having children for the duration of their relationship? I'm also reluctant to say no. If, if Paul recognizes that singleness can be a primary benefit to the kingdom because it doesn't involve the difficulties, entanglements, and distractions of family life, I'm open to the idea that some couples are called to such circumstances that, um, that it would create hardship to bring children along, and that that position, say, on a very difficult mission field, may have some permanency to it that would continue to answer that in the affirmative. I'm open to that idea. I'm also very concerned about our ability to do what might be an okay thing for a terrible reason. And I've already touched on that a little bit, but, but I would think that if you were going to live in this place comfortably, you really need to feel like that's where the Lord is leaving you. You really have to be convinced, and you have to take your own fears and desires and lay them before the Lord really actively. I did not want to have boys. I only wanted to have two, two girls. And I didn't really know why I felt that way, but the reason is because I have no idea how to relate to men. And the idea of having to raise two boys, it just terrified me. Sometimes it's things like that. Other times, like I said, there can be desires or standards that get in the way that have nothing to do with what God is calling you to and other issues. And I just think if you are going to come to that conclusion, I want to be open to it. But I also think that we need to recognize that, um, that we're capable of self and even selfish deception. And so, it's something that should be re- uh, weighed, and probably also something that should be revisited. Given your assertion that the church at large should move towards a deeper, fuller expression of family, how should we now move towards this understanding? Is this not uh, is not this understanding at the heart of the gospel itself? Absolutely, it is. Um, this. This idea that Jesus died for the church um, is, is clearly at the heart of the gospel. Um, and it's, it, we need to be clear here this is not community for community's sake. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is right in pointing out that the greatest threat to community is those who are aspiring to create it. Okay? But we are all connected, united in what Jesus has done for us, and that cultivates community. And that doesn't mean that we have no activeness that we just passively receive that we have to participate in it Um, but I think one of the ways that we see this being handled in the New Testament is directly in the context of what God has done in Jesus Christ and so the New Testament constantly calls us to be generous with one another that like I said is one of the features we see the outstanding feature that Luke constantly highlights in the book of Acts about the church is that they shared their possessions with one another drastically it's hard to escape that Um, when he speaks of that issue and calls for it, he does it in the grounds of the gospel. And he says, why do we share? Why are we generous with one another? Why should you send money to this church in Jerusalem that you've never met? And this is what he says. Don't forget that he who was rich, Jesus, became poor so that you being poor might become rich. The greater we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the more it frees us up to show that self-same sacrificial love for other people. Um, And so I think one of the ways we do this is that we meditate on the gospel, but we also have to do it in the context the New Testament does it, which is communal. Do you realize that most of the commands given in the New Testament epistles are given in the plural? They're not given to you. They're given to the church. Sooner or later, you have to recognize that we cannot be Christians without fulfilling the constant one another's of scripture. And so we have to read it not just that Jesus died for me as an individual to be my friend, my buddy, and provide me salvation, but Jesus died for this community, the church, um, and that we participate in the body. Um. Okay, I'm going to assume these questions are together even though they're out of order. You can agree with me if you like. What are some practical steps in the church that begin to start as becoming the family we're meant to be? Follow-up question, what am I supposed to do about it? I really appreciate that follow-up question because uh, let's just recognize a few pieces. One, depending on the church you're a part of, you may have the ability to do stuff or not, to make a big impact or not, okay? Um, Second, what we're talking about, if it's one another, involves all participation, Um, consider this with me. Uh, Consider that the New Testament presents, although it presents leaders, it also presents what I would call every member ministry. And so Paul in Ephesians 4 says that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for what? For the equipping of the saints for ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. He doesn't say that he's given them to do the ministry and build up the body of Christ. He's given them to equip the whole body to build up itself. Okay. And so that means there is a role to play in this. Here are some things that I've learned in my own life, okay? When we ask what should we do? The list is long, okay? And the road is long too. When we ask what can I do right now? Things get a lot clearer, okay? I'm a person who believes tremendously in limits and boundaries, and it's mainly because I am so well acquainted with my own limitations. And I have left it all out on the field with it not being enough. Enough to know that I can't do it all. Okay? And so, what I have done instead is try and determine what's one thing this could look like and do that. And so, for example, and I don't think she'd mind me sharing this, but I I mentioned a friend of mine who's single in the church. My family's effectively adopted her and she's adopted us. We have regular meals with her we've invited her on vacations she takes my kids out uh, you know to go see plays in town uh I meet with her regularly for walks and we talk okay um there's too many single people in my church for me to do that with everybody in fact I'm overwhelmed by the 70 person body our church is in even just trying to know all of them enough to feel like I'm their pastor But I think we can all take steps in this direction just to say, you know, who is my neighbor? What does it look like to be a loving family and take steps in those directions? Uh, Another one that I'll mention that I've learned practically is that there's two things that go into being a family, which is room and habit, okay? And they have to be together. There has to be space for relationship to be formed. It's not a switch that we just throw on and off. It has to grow naturally. It has to give time. But the best way for it to grow is through habit or rhythm. Okay? And so just like your family that you grow to know because you see them every day and can't escape it, developing rhythms of community where you intentionally say, we're going to get together. And you don't have to have a strong agenda, but we're going to get together regularly and consistently. That's the place where love and family thrives and where community grows. And so, um, so this isn't going to ever be satisfying if you just come up with a single event and pull it off and then sit down to assess and go, there we go, I'm done. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relationship and deeper and deeper, right? And so, so I would encourage you to find a way to give room and then give it a rhythm, Why is it that as a single person where I feel the most undercurrent of pressure and judgment towards getting married is from the Christians in my life? This seems so backwards. The culture in my work is where I feel most safe to be single. I think that is unfortunately but totally true. And like I said, and I've been trying to figure this out. You, you want to know a big gap in my understanding of these things? There's a book by Derek Sherwin Bailey called Sexual Relations and Christian Thought*. And that might be the British tile, because I actually own it in American, localized, and British. I didn't realize it was the same book until 70 pages in. Um, But either way, Derek Sherwin Bailey, he starts with the New Testament and walks through church history until the authoring of his book in 1959. Now, can any of you tell why that's a frustrating time to write a book on sexuality? Because it's right before the sexual revolution. And what's interesting is, even in 1959 the church's tendency was still to elevate singleness over marriage, to swing the other way and see marriage as a condescension to lustful desires or, or something that, that wasn't as devoted or as deep into a relationship with God. It was something about the 60s that caused the church reactively to elevate marriage, okay? And there's a positive in that, that when Paul says it is good... If a man does not touch a woman, he's not saying it's best. He's saying, from a Jewish mindset, this is also good. It's profound enough for it to be equal with marriage, let alone to supplant it. Um, but we have cultivated a culture that's generally anti-culture and therefore pro-family. Okay? And so it is incredibly alienating. And we also don't understand what it says in Proverbs. Proverbs says this about marriage. That he who finds a spouse finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Okay, now there's a twofold tension in that. Find a spouse implies looking. Favor and and gift from the Lord implies giving. Right, that you're a recipient. One is active and the other is passive. And there's a tendency in the church to assume uh, either of those postures but I think the one that's the most concerning for single people is this assumption that's underlying that since you're you're not married, something's wrong with you. That you haven't prayed enough, that you haven't tried hard enough, that you're not ready for marriage. Those are not biblical ideas. Those are Christian cultural ideas. Um, And they tend to undervalue the single life and the benefit and the beauty of it. Um, And... Instead of speaking to the person who asked this question, let me speak to you of those, to those of you who aren't single. This is something we need to change. This is something we need to do a better job of communicating. This is a place where pastors have to stop illustrating as if everybody in the audience is married or as if the fulfillment of whatever the application the scriptures is giving plays out primarily in the marriage relationship. Um, it's a tough thing. And the church better figure it out because less and less people are getting married. And so unless we want less and less people in the church or to feel loved in the church, then we have to figure this out. Okay, there's a related question here. Let's see if I can put it up in order. Hey, that worked. Is the presence of lonely single people in a church congregation an indictment of that church's lack of community? If yes, what can be done to change that? Um, Once again, I would say yes, and I'll just point to something that we've done recently. Um, I invited all the single people in our church over for dinner to just talk to them about, about singleness, to hear what they liked about it, what they didn't like, what was hard to let them share with one another, and primarily just to listen. I didn't prepare a Bible study. Um, I spoke in a couple of times where I said, Hey, that's actually how I feel too when I'm married. Just, just to provide some context, because the grass is always greener and it's worth mentioning. But for the most part, I just listened. And here was the most interesting thing. When I asked them why they didn't have better relationships with the families in our church, it was because they were convinced uh, that the families already were too busy, had too much going on, and that they would be a problem or a difficulty. Um, And I confess to them that I actually assume the opposite. That being a man who has five children, inviting a single person for dinner seems like it would be overwhelming to them. And so I'm reluctant to to bring them in to what I think will be too much for them. And so that makes me think that this issue uh, is actually not one of desire. It might be one that's blind. And I think much of the church just doesn't think about these things. And so when they do think about single people, they think of either starting a way for them to get married off or starting a ministry that's just for them and isolating them further in the church, um, or, uh, or they don't think about them at all. I think that's true. But I also think that many of us assume that singles are too busy or too uninterested to spend time with us. Um, and my experience in talking with them is they share the same assumptions, and the best way to overcome it is to just stop believing them. Um, And so so I think that's enough on that topic. Let's see if we've got any more here. It's 9.13, so I'll take either one or two more. Let's see what we've got. Side note, if I didn't answer your question yet tonight, I will text you a response this week. Okay, let me refresh here. Who oh, I really want to answer this one. Why do you think less people are choosing to get married? Um, I mentioned this book last week, but there's a book called Premarital Sex in America that was written in 2002 by a couple of sociologists who took the biggest national studies about the sexual relationship of people in their 20s and coupled it with over 100 one-on-one interviews. Okay. And what they found is what people believed about how sex worked in America and how it actually worked on paper were two different worlds apart. In fact, they finished the book with ten modern myths about sexuality. It's a very interesting read, and I assume, even though it's more than a decade old, it's still applicable. If anything, we've gone further in that direction, not in a new direction entirely. Um, But what was interesting in that book is that they do present the studies of less people getting married, but they argue it's not because marriage is undervalued, but still holds such a high regard in our society. In other words, people don't get married primarily because they don't want to get divorced. And so they realize the seriousness of the marriage commitment, and they're afraid to enter in unprepared. So, for example, that's led to the common sensibility, the common sense idea that cohabitation, living together, should precede marriage or you're actually putting that marriage at risk. You need to test it out and make sure you're compatible and that this is really going to work before you do something as serious as, and as permanent as marriage. Okay? Now, one of the things that, um, that uh, premarital sex in America points out is that the studies show that cohabitation makes your relationship more likely to fail. Not less that effectively um, this idea of withholding commitment is built into the design and therefore is uncommitted and can't um, you know can't manage that transition um, but I think it's worth mentioning here that marriage still matters to people that, the, that as an institution although there are those today who are, are advocating or futuristically calling for a new way of relating that's aside from marriage, that's a relatively new and minor minority. It seems, according to this study, that most people are choosing not to get married because they think that marriage is such a big deal and they're afraid to screw it up. And let's be honest, many of them have hands-on experience. If 50% of couples in the U.S. get divorced, then half of these people navigating their own marriage are the children of divorce. And obviously that changes the way that you view these things. Okay, last one, and then we'll close for the night. Oh, I put it up backwards. Hold on, I think I can fix that.
1: Weird, okay.
0: You can read with me, it's numbered. If technology muddies the genetic heritage water with fertility treatments, how does this muddying differ from adoption? Do you see fertility treatments as morally or ethically problematic? Does adoption have these same issues? I'd like to deal with this in two parts, okay? First, let's talk about what IVF actually is. In in vitro uh, fertilization, what they do is they actually take a batch, usually a dozen or more eggs, fertilize all of them, allow all of them to gestate, and then take the ones that seem like the best candidates and then implant those. From a Christian perspective, that's abortive because what happens to the rest of those eggs? They're destroyed, okay? Now, many people don't understand that when they get involved in fertility treatments, but that's one of the things that we have to recognize is involved in this, that it is a pro-life issue for Christians. Um, Surrogacy is a little bit different. Because surrogacy can involve your husband's sperm and your egg, but implanted in a womb that can actually carry it to term. Now, I still think there's places to be concerned about that because we're still setting a distance between the one flesh union of the husband and wife. Um, But I don't think it's as clear. Um, But both of these differ from adoption. And here's why. Okay, Because these uses of technology are moving away from the design of marriage to something different. Adoption is recognizing something's already wrong and moving it back, okay? It moves in the opposite direction. Adoption takes bad circumstances and redeems it. In fact, it redeems it in biblical imagery. Christians should be all about adoption because we've been adopted. And so when we take a child who, um, who was destitute and alone and abandoned and redeem them, and give them an identity in our own name, embrace them in love, we are physically, with our choices, preaching the gospel, okay? And so they move in separate directions, and I think that has to be recognized. They can't be allowed to be on par. Just because we're okay with adoption doesn't imply um, that fertility treatments necessarily fall in the same category, only because remember that the science that has designed these fertility tri- treatments has an ideology in it, okay? And that ideology says these are just eggs, it's only about your happiness, it doesn't really matter what happens to them as long as you get a baby at the end. We don't always think that through, we don't always see that. Um, but, but what we're talking about here tonight uh, is different and it's worth recognizing here that infertility is, is a terrible thing. If anything, it's something where the application of not just rejoice with those who rejoice, like when we celebrate the birth of a baby, but weep with those who weep, should apply to the church. It should be a manifestation of how we love one another. Um, but because of adoption and because of the family in the church, there's a whole lot of that. I know it's different. Because it's not your baby, because it didn't come from your body. I know that's different, but there's a lot of that value that can be had uh, within the church and within community and within adoption. Um, And so I think those things need to be kept in mind. I'm sure you guys are as tired as I am. So we'll go ahead and stop there for the night. As far as I can tell, that's the end of all of our fresh questions as well. Let me pray for us, and I'll let you go. Father, if we've learned anything in the last three weeks, it's that the sexual ethic presented in the Bible is demanding, not because sex is somehow bad, but because it's so tremendously good. Not because it's somehow so unimportant, but because it's so deeply significant. And I know for all of us, whether these issues touch the hot topic issues of our time in our own personal life or in the lives of our friends or family, um, or if if we just find ourselves being in the in the status quo of these things, understanding these three aspects completely shapes our sexuality. I pray, Lord, uh, for all of the work that still needs to be done in our hearts and in our lives and in our churches on these issues, um, that you would be faithful to continue to convict, to lead, um, to bring about repentance, to encourage, to provide your consolation because you are the God of all comfort, and to instill us with hope. Because all of these things point to a final reality that is unshakable, A city built without hands that's foundations are strong because they're built on the promises of God. I ask that you continue that work in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. 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 Have a good night.